Well, good morning. It's good to uh, see everyone here this morning. Thank you for braving it through the snow that we might worship God together. Uh, at this time, yeah, our kids can be dismissed to Transformation Station there in the back with uh, Abby and our other children's workers. Uh, so if you have a, a child up to the a- age of preschool, uh, through the age of preschool, then, then feel free to send them on back. Um, but yeah, it's an exciting, exciting time of the year. Halloween is here and it feels like Christmas, right? Uh, but last night for us, more than just the snow that was just pounding the streets and our house and all this, we had kind of another exciting piece of the puzzle for our family. And, and that is this. We had an intruder in our house last night. Thankfully, this intruder was not the kind that climbs through windows or breaks through doors. This was a little intruder with four feet and a tail, and he probably likes to eat cheese and peanut butter. So last night, Marsha comes in. I'm doing something. I remember what it was at the time. She comes in, and she says, Tanner, we, we have a mouse. I saw it make a dash for you know the dishwasher. And that was kind of unsettling to her. And I'll admit, you know, mice are not my uh, favorite, you know, varmint either. And so last night, we declared war on the mouse. And so we, I went down to the basement, got a mouse trap, put the cheese in there, thinking, you know, this is going to seal the deal. And sure enough, I get up this morning, and what happens? The cheese is gone, but of course, there's no mouse. And uh, so, so, so the, the war is still going on in our house when it comes to Mighty Mouse being a part of our home. Now, it's one thing when there is, you know, a mouse hanging out in your house that's unwelcomed. And, and if we're being honest, we, we all have these things. When, when, when something is, is present in our life or in our space, it probably makes us feel a little uncomfortable and we want to take steps to remove whatever that is. And on a much greater scale, we as people have an unwelcome guest, not dwelling in our house, well, actually dwelling in our house, but really through the fact that there is something dwelling in our hearts that we need to remove, that we need to declare war on, and that is the presence of indwelling sin. And so what Paul is going to do this morning is he's going to help us examine our lives in Colossians chapter 3. We're going to study verses 5 through 11. And what Paul wants us to do is he wants us to see sin for what it is. And he is going to tell us that we must deal ruthlessly with sin in our life by putting it to death. So Paul, in essence, will tell us to declare war on that unwelcomed resident in our hearts that we know as sin. And we need to hear this every so often. So this is your first Sunday at Redemption Hill. We don't apologize for the topic this morning that we're talking about sin, and we're going to talk a lot about how God deals with this in our lives. But we're just rolling through the the book of Colossians uh, in this series on the supremacy of Christ and, and this text is so important because if we're being honest, so often in our lives, we kind of live in spiritual chill mode, right? 
It's as if we're kind of on vacation. We're not very vigilant about the sin that is battling for our affections and our desires and our thoughts and our actions day after day after day. And so this is where Paul has us this morning in Colossians chapter 3, verses 5 through 11. And so what I want to do is read the first three verses of our passage here, and uh, then we're going to break it down as we go. Paul writes in Colossians 3, 5, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them. So we, we see here Paul's uh, first exhortation, and the first encouragement that I want to give us this morning is this, to get out your weapons and put sin to death. Get out your weapons and put sin to death. What we see in these opening words that, that, that Paul is, is strong in his language. He says, put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And, and we need to, to note this word, therefore. What Paul is going to impact in 5 through 11 and even down on, 12 to 17, 18 through 4, 1, and, and on as he goes through the book of Colossians is really built on what he's just told us in verses 1 through 4 of Colossians 3. There he said to seek things that are above, to set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. And so this is the foundation for then what he's going to unpack in the rest of Colossians is to say, well, how can we seek things that are above? What does this look like? How can we uh, put our minds there? What does a life look like that passionately pursues God and the first thing he's going to tell us is that a, a life that passionately pursues God is a life that puts sin to death. Now, when we talk about sin, what are we talking about? I want to attempt to give us a doctrine of sin, if you will, kind of for the streets, right? Very common everyday language that we can grasp and communicate to others that really helps us understand what sin is and how it works in our life. Number one, we sin because we are sinful. We sin because we are sinful. What is sin? Sin is any failure to conform to God's moral standard for our lives, whether that's in thought or attitude or nature. It is a deviation from God's standard and will for our life. But sin begins within us. We are, as David says in the Psalms, we are born in sin. Psalm 51, verse 6, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. And if we just look at life, we look at our own life, we know this to be true. In fact, a great case study would be for all of us to take a walk downstairs to our kids' hangout where they have transformation station, right? I mean, we do not have to teach children to rebel, right? I mean, do we need to give them like a crash course on what it means to say no? I mean, they just learn that word and they excel at saying no. No. No, no, no. Or my personal favorite, not so much but kind of, is, is, the, is the running, screaming, no, into the other room where then just the meltdown happens. Have you ever seen this? Kids are excellent 
at rebellion. And guess what? So are adults. We have a great ability to sin, and theologians call this indwelling sin. It refers to our capacity to sin. We choose to sin because we have such a great capacity to deviate from God's will for our life. We're not sinners. Listen to this. We're not sinners simply because we, are, we sin. We, are, we, we sin because we are sinful. Does that make sense? We sin because we have a, a complete and unshakable capacity to sin. So, number one, we sin because we're sinful. Number two, we are professional sinners. You may not be a good at a lot of things in your life if you're like me. We're all growing in different areas. But let me encourage you with tongue-in-cheek. You're really good at sin, right? We are all very good at sin. We sin not only because we're sinful, but we sin because we want to sin. Sin looks pleasing to us, a particular action. We have these desires, and we go after that which is contrary to God's will for our life. And this is what Paul says in verse 7. Look back in verse 7. He says, look, in, in these things that he just named, you too once walked when you were living in them. So Paul uses this word walk to refer to a way of life. He says that you were living in these things. And obviously Paul in verse 5 and verse 8, he's not giving us a comprehensive list of all the sins that we commit. But he certainly is laying out several important ones for us. And so if, if we're being honest again, we would probably agree with Paul when he writes in Romans 3.23, he says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're very good at committing sin. And then number three, why is that? Well, because sin doesn't sleep. There is never a time, never a day, that sin is not battling for our commitment and our allegiance to God. Sin never takes a day off. It never punches a time clock. There's no vacation for sin. Sin would not make it in the professional sports world because there was never a lockout for sin. Sin would probably not even be so concerned with the Occupy movement that's going on all over America. Why? Because it's already doing a really good job occupying a place in our hearts. Sin never sleeps. There is never a ceasefire in our battle with sin. So why is this so serious? Well, number four, sin has grave consequences. Literally, sin has grave consequences. I love what Adrian Rogers, a, a Baptist pastor, uh, said. He says, sin will take you further than you want to go and it will keep you longer than you want to stay. Sin takes us further than we want to go and will keep us longer than we want to stay. And what we don't realize is that those who give themselves to a lifestyle of sin, never repenting, never returning from that and turning to Christ to now not, not uh, live their life for themselves or the world, but, but to, to turn and to live for God, those people, it says in verse 6 that on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. What a sobering verse. 
What a, what a verse that's kind of in our face. Not a very popular verse for us to affirm these days, I'm sure, because we all want to embrace a God of love and a God of grace and a God of mercy. And God is all of these things, infinitely loving, infinitely gracious, infinitely merciful, but he's also infinitely holy. He's perfect in and of himself. And his holiness demands justice for that which is unholy. And so as much as we can affirm that God is a God of love, we also must affirm that God is a God of justice and a God of judgment and a God of wrath. And the wrath of God refers to his intense hatred of that which is evil and the coming judgment that flows from that hatred of what is evil. So God, because he is holy, because he is just, because he cannot act contrary to his nature or inconsistent with who he is, he must judge our sin. Therefore, in light of the fact that we sin because we are sinful, that we're professional sinners, that sin never sleeps, and that there are grave consequences to sin, number five, we must kill sin in our life. When it comes to sin, Paul is pulling no punches here. This is not, our struggle against sin is not like a chess match. It's a war. And this is what the Bible teaches us again and again and again. 1 Peter 2.11 says, Beloved, I urge you as strangers and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your souls. There is a battle going on, a contest, if you will, in the heart of a believer for our allegiance to God. Though the ultimate uh, penalty of sin has been dealt with and the the dominion of sin in our life no longer has mastery over us if we are in Christ. In other words, we have an ability to say no to sin and actually to put sin to death now because of Jesus and what he's done for us on the cross, receiving this gift, we have an ability, but there is still an intense battle. And you know this. If you're in Christ, you experience this, not just occasionally, it is a daily battle. And so that is why John Owen, one of my favorite 17th century writers would say in this book called The Mortification of Sin, he would say, be killing sin or sin will be killing you. Constant battle, no days off. We have to actively be fighting against our inclination for sin. And so what are some of those sins that we battle? Well, Paul lays out several for us in verse 5. And again, this is not a comprehensive list. A list of sins goes way beyond what we find in Colossians 3, but this gives us a good start. And And I think particularly for our day, This was written in the first century. Here we are in the 21st century. And many of these same sins are the ones that we struggle with the most in our day. He begins the list with sexual immorality. And let me say, first off, because, you know, a lot of times, and we may 
pointed out again at the, and later in the sermon, Christians are often known for more of what they're against than what they're for. Let me say that Redemption Hill Church, Tanner, Pastor Tanner, God, we are for sex. Sex is good thing. Sex is God's idea. So the encouragement would be get married and enjoy. But when Paul is saying sexual immorality, what he's referring to is any form of sexual sin that is outside of the biblical bounds of marriage. There are few people, perhaps no one in this room, that has not fallen into sexual sin. We live in a sex craze culture. We know that sex sells, that sensuality is literally at our fingertips. With the click of a button, we have anything we desire at, at our fingertips. And there are all kinds of statistics that back this up. The, the adult industry in 2006 raked in $13.3 billion in the U.S. Worldwide, it escalates to $97 billion. Statistics say that around 70%, I mean, this is staggering, and this is not just an epidemic in America, this is an epidemic in the church in America too. 70% of male adults between the ages of 18 and 34 visit a website with sexually explicit material in any given month. But one thing that I'm learning is that this is not just a battle that men have to wage war against. It's also one for ladies as well. Perhaps it comes in different forms, but, but even with the, 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 what's available on the internet, we find that 28% of those admitting to sexual addiction are women. Perhaps that surprises you, but our theology of sin, our doctrine of sin from the street should tell us that we are capable of anything. So it goes both ways. It works both ways. Both men and women struggle with sexual sin, these sexual desires. And let me encourage us practically here. One of our biggest problems as we fight sin, as we seek to put sin to death, is that we have a cavalier approach to our sin. We want to toy with sin. We want to flirt with sin. We want to go as far as we can go. It's the question of a middle school student who has a crush on a girl, right? Can, you know, hold her hand or more than that or put my arm around her or, you know, and on and on it goes. You understand that? And we flirt with our sin. But Jesus in Matthew 5 says that we should have an eye-gouging, hand-chopping approach to our sin. Not literally, of course, but he is emphasizing how serious we should take the sin that is not only evident in our action, but is evident in our thoughts and in our motivations and desires. And that's exactly where he is going as he moves on through verse 5. He says, not only sexual immorality, but also impurity. This gets at the evil thoughts and intentions of the mind. 
So God is interested more than in just our actions. He wants to get at our thought life. But not just our thought life, the motivations and the desires that drive our thought life and our actions. God wants to deal with all of us in a comprehensive manner. We aren't just beings who act. We have thoughts and desires that must be dealt with. And that's what he says going on. Not only sexual morality and purity, but passion and evil desire. Those referring to the perverted, twisted longings in our heart that goes after that which God prohibits. And then he kind of sums it up with this word covetousness. And we could summarize the word covetousness with one word, and that would be more. I want more of this, more of that, more of what I don't need, more of what God has not freely given me. And so we can see that covetousness is at the root of really any sin, and particularly this sexual sin that Paul is highlighting in verse 5. And so we come to understand not only an experience, but also biblically speaking, that we are creatures of desire. The question is not, do you have desires? But the question should be, how strong are your desires? Listen to what C.S. Lewis says. Uh, You can follow along on the screen if you will. He, He says this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. That's Lewis's way of saying vacation. It's a British word for vacation, a vacation at the sea. And he ends by saying, we are far too easily pleased. So what Paul would say and what Lewis is saying here and what we even saw in our text last week when he says, seek things that are above, set your mind there, not on things that are on earth, is what Paul is saying is saying, fight pleasure with a greater superior pleasure. In other words, seek after that which ultimately will not leave you hanging, will not give you empty promises, will will not be something that promises much but can only fail to deliver on those promises because all of the sin in in our life, and we know that sin is pleasurable, right? But the, the, the pleasurability of sin is temporary. But God gives us something much greater when he gives us himself. And to live according to God's intentions, which is wisdom, is where blessing and life and lasting joy and true peace and true love and true life is found. And so let's examine our desires because the greatest danger in all of these sins is what we see at the end of verse 5 where he says, and covetousness, which is idolatry. All of our sin problem at its root is a worship problem. 
A worship disorder lies at the root of all of our sexual sin and really any sin that we can name. Pride, laziness, greed, and you could go on down the list. And so Ed Welch is helpful here when he says, any earthly desire that does not take no for an answer is a lust that surpasses your desire for Jesus. So think about that. It's not just a sin against a person. It is ultimately saying this desire is superior to God. And so I'm going to choose this desire in my life rather than choosing the God who made me and created me to love him and to live for him and to glorify him. So Paul uses this language of execution in verses 5 through 7. He's saying we must deal ruthlessly, ruthlessly with sin in our life by putting sin to death. And then number two, he's going to tell us in, with the language of removal in verses 8 through 11 that we should clean up our, our wardrobe, clean out our wardrobe, and put on new clothes. Read, read these verses with me, if you will. Paul says, But now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and desires, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarians, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. And so Paul, like he often loves to do, verse 7, he said, hey, in, in these you two once walked, but now you must put them all the way. Paul loves to do this. Once this was your life, now this is your life. And he's, he's building on, again, where he's just taken us, and he's really using an, another uh, word picture to say the same thing. Uh, first he said, put sin to death, kill it, get it out of your life, execute the sin. Now he is saying, whatever is ugly, whatever is tired and worn out, which is what sin is, and whatever is, is filthy in your life, look at whatever is in your wardrobe and strip it off, take it out, and put it away. Remove it. This is the language of, uh, to a degree, verse 8, where he says, put them all away, but especially verse 9, where he says, you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self. So Paul here is saying is it's the picture of, of a garment, a, a piece of clothing. We are to take off that which does not look like God, like Christ, and we are to put on that which is of him. In verse 8, he is going to address sins that deal especially closely with our interpersonal relationships. The first three attitudes here give, give rise to then the, the last two, which are sins of the tongue, sins of our speech, slander, and obscene talk from our mouths. And so let's, let's think about these uh, for just a couple moments. Uh, number one, he says anger and wrath. These refer to outbursts of temper that are destructive for our personal relationships. And you might say, uh, Tanner, I'm, I'm pretty laid back. 
I don't get angry very often. In fact, that's probably the way that I think a lot of times. I'm pretty chill, I'm a pretty laid back guy for those of you who know me. But if we're being honest again, uh, we would have to say that we are all tempted to anger, right? It may be, you know, that person that is just kind of agitating you at work. It may be the, the car that's in front of you that, that hasn't learned to drive yet. It may be a family member, a spouse, a brother, a sister. And we have to then remind ourselves of James 1.18. When we're tempted to become angry, what does James say? He says, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. So we have to deal with anger and wrath, really two terms that, that are referring to the same thing. And then, and then he goes on to malice, which refers to deliberate intention to harm someone else, which then is, 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 is usually followed or is accompanied by slander and obscene talk. Slander is speech that defames or degrades another person's character. Whereas obscene talk is a kind of a general term for uh, that, those words that are considered out of bounds of what is appropriate. So Paul wants these Colossians to ad- avoid all unwholesome and abusive speech. And the motivations, the, the emotions, the, the, the evil uh, uh, tendencies of our heart that drive such, spe- such speech. We should, instead of using words that tear others down, we should use words that build them up, right? So he he goes on in verse 9, he says, Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices. So we're to speak words of truth. I mean, Jesus says that our words are extremely important. He says, in fact, that we will give an account for every careless word that we speak in Matthew 12. So, how do you use your tongue? What is controlling your tongue? Is it not what is in your heart? So we must deal with both the root in our heart, but also the fruit of what we speak. And Paul is encouraging these Colossians to watch their tongue, that they might glorify God. Now, in the end of verse 9, moving into verse 10, we have one of the most beautiful pictures of the biblical doctrine of sanctification that we can find in Scripture. And what Paul says here is he says, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. And so the old self is referring to uh, the life that we once lived apart from experiencing the grace of God, the saving grace of God in Christ. He's saying that we have to put off that old man. And then in contrast, we are to put on the new self, the, 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 the part of us that... Um, is changed by grace and desires to follow Christ. And so as we think about sanctification, let's just give a a definition of sanctification to help us process this. Sanctification is a progressive work of God and man that makes us more and more free from sin and more and more like Christ. 
So this is the process of putting off that which does not belong to Christ and putting on that which is of Christ. It's a continual, constant process that is, as this definition exposes for us, progressive. In other words, our life is this constant putting off and putting on. And when someone comes to Christ, they are justified by God's grace. They are counted righteous in him. But sanctification is the process of being made more righteous, being made righteous. So a, a Christian's life should not look the same uh, a year after they received Christ as it did when they first came to Christ. Or to say it a little more in a, in a more futuristic sense, your life, if you are in Christ, if you're a believer in Christ, your life in a year from now, five years from now, 20 years from now, should not look like what it does today. Why? Because God's Spirit is at work in us, making us more and more and more and more like Jesus. And I love what Paul does in Colossians. He really helps us understand what sanctification is because what he says is sanctification is really the process of becoming practically who we already are positionally. Now let me unpack that. Paul has in chapter two, in the first part of chapter three, he's saying, if you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, and if you're in Christ, the assumption is you have died with Christ. In your, in your union with Christ, you have died to the old self, you have died to the ways of this world, and you have now been raised to new life with Christ. And so if you have died to sin, then keep each and every day dying to sin. If you have been raised with Christ, then keep putting on that which is of life that belongs to God. You see, it's what Oswald Chambers taught me in a devotional in college. He calls it the supreme climb. In other words, it's not that we don't continue to battle sin. We've already seen this in the text. But as we battle our sin and as we become more like Christ, we're taking steps forward. And sure, we're going to take a step back occasionally, but then we take some more steps forward. And then when we take a step back, then we're still taking more and more steps forward. This is a supreme climb to our Christian life. And I, I love this language here. It's something that we want to emphasize at Redemption Hill because it's not enough to put off certain things in our life, we must also put on other things in our life. So again, a lot of times Christians, and even this can tend to be our mindset as believers, the Bible gives us a list of restrictions, right? Don't do this, don't do that, don't go to that place, don't say certain things. And sure, there are some prohibitions in the Bible, some, some restrictions, some commands that we are to, to, to keep that deal with putting off the old man, but it's not enough to put off pride if we don't put on humility. It's not enough to put off greed if we don't put on the Christ-like character of generosity. It's not enough to put off selflessness if we don't put on and clothe ourselves with selflessness. Whatever sin it is in our life, sexual immorality, it's not enough to put that off. At the same time, we have to put on self-control. We put off impurity so that we can put on purity. It's like 
a wife who might ask her husband to get a painting project done at the house. Now, this actually uh, happened for us recently. We moved into a new place in May, and the landlord said it was cool to paint. And so, you know, Marcia kind of starts dropping hints, and uh, I'm kind of trying to conveniently forget those hints, uh, in part because, you know, busy, and in other part because I'm not much of a handyman, and, you know, kind of ashamed to admit that. I'm growing. Uh, it's a, pro a process of progress. And, uh, but anyway, thankfully in our community group, we have some guys who uh, are not quite as um, enable, unable as me, whatever word I'm trying to find there. Thank you. And uh, so we gathered some friends to come over and help with this painting project. Now, thankfully, we didn't have to deal with wallpaper. Have you ever repainted a house that you have to deal with wallpaper? I mean, that is a painstaking pro process, right? I mean, it just takes sometimes, depending on how you know, tight it is on there, I mean, it can just take days to get all of that wallpaper off. Can you imagine a husband that has just broken a sweat hour after hour, you know, several nights in a row after he's gotten home from work and he's just taking that wallpaper off again and again and again and again until he gets the wall clean and he says, honey, come in here. Look, the wallpaper is gone. Aren't you happy with our project? And she's going to say, uh, that's, that's wonderful, but, but what about the paint cans at your feet? The project is not done yet. You need to hook up with Ty Pennington and kind of get that home, uh, extreme home makeover thing like working to the fullest extent here because I still want some color on these walls, right? Like move the bus before I tell you to get on a bus and like get out of here, right? Anybody watch that show? Did you get that? Okay, just making sure. So, so, so again, it's a picture. It's, it's, it's not enough to put off sinful qualities in our life, but we must put on the character of Christ. And as we do, the text says that we are being renewed in knowledge after the image of our creator. We are. What is sanctification? Simply put, sanctification is becoming more and more and more and more and more like Jesus, our Savior and Lord. That is the goal. And the mysterious and amazing thing about those in Christ Every one of us is what Paul says in verse 11. He says, Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave free, but Christ is all and in all. And so what he says is that those in Christ, the most important thing about us, that which defines us, is our connection to Christ. So it's not now I belong to this group of people. I'm a man, I'm a woman, I have more money than you do. It is, we are in Christ. We both belong to Christ. He brings us together. And this is why as a church, we want to be a diverse church that looks like our community all around us. We want Redemption Hill to be a thumbprint of our community. Why? Because the gospel breaks down these barriers of class and ethnicity and, and social distinction. And he brings us all together as one new person. One new humanity that belongs to him. 
And so Paul says, Christ is all and in all. Christ is our life. He is everything to us. And he is in us that we might put sin to get death together and put off, do away with old man that we might put on Christ. And so uh, for the next few moments to close, I want to, to give us just some help here on how we can put sin to death in our life. How can we this week have the mindset of Paul and aggressively and strategically put sin to death? Let me give a few encouragements. Number one, see life from a biblical perspective. Where this needs to start is with a proper view of God. God made me for his glory. God is perfectly holy. And the slightest sin in our life is a heinous offense to his character. Why? Because he is infinitely holy. And so a proper view of God, a proper view of ourself, that we are more sinful than we can imagine, and yet a proper view of Christ and the gospel, that we are more loved than we can ever know, and that through the cross, through Jesus dying on the cross, becoming our sacrifice, absorbing what we find in verse six, the wrath of God. What did Jesus do on the cross? He was the propitiation for our sin. It's a, it's a, it's a fancy biblical word that means he took the wrath of God on himself. He stood in my place where I should have received judgment and wrath. Jesus comes and he stands in front of it and he takes it for me. And that's the gospel. So we have to understand and view life from a biblical perspective. Yes, our sin is great. Yes, we should really be concerned because God is a perfect and holy God, but God gives us resources to live for him, and we do it through the gospel. Number two, we should be filled with the Spirit. A parallel passage for Colossians 3 is uh, Romans 8.13, and what does Paul say there? He says, if by the Spirit... The Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity, active and dwelling in our life today if we're in Christ. If by the Spirit you put to death the misdeeds of the body, you will live. And so how do we put sin to death in our life? We put sin to death by the Spirit. So Paul's gonna say in Galatians, walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, live in the Spirit. You said that sounds good, Tanner, but how do you do that? Well, if you remember from our first couple of sermons in Colossians, we had this acronym. I'm sorry, I don't have it on the screen today, but, but it's APTAT, okay? It's not a, not a word, but it helps us think through uh, a series of, of kind of steps. So A, we admit our need for help. God, I can't do this on my own. God, this temptation is real, and if you don't help me here, I'm gonna blow it. So we admit our need for help. Uh, number two, we pray. We, we ask God for help. Piper says, you don't know what prayer is for until you understand that life is war. So this battle is going on for our affection, for our allegiance, and we have to come to God and say, God, I can't do it, but I know you can in me. And so I'm gonna pray and ask God for help. Number three, the T, 
trust in God's promises. He can help us through it. No temptation that sees you is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. There is no sin. Listen to this. If you are a believer, be encouraged today. There is no sin that you cannot say no to because the Spirit of God dwells within you. And so we trust in His promises and, um, and, and, then, and then we thank God for His help after we act in obedience to Him. So be filled with the Spirit. Depend on the Spirit. The main encouragement there is to see your need and depend on the Spirit to help you battle sin in your life daily. Then number three, use the weapon of the Word. How, do we, how, do we be, how are we being filled with the Spirit? How do we depend on the Spirit? Well, we depend on the Spirit-inspired Word. How does Jesus fight temptation in the wilderness? He uses God's Word. God has called me to live differently. I'm going to follow him. He quotes scripture when he's tempted. Man does not live on bread alone. Satan, he lives on every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus, as our true and better Adam, then shows us the way, and he makes the way for us to live life to God's glory. So number three, use the weapon of word, and then finally, live in community. We, God has not made us to be about this endeavor of battling our sin alone. We need one another. And so there is no doubt today, like right here in this moment, if, if, if we would have the vulnerability to, to just come to the table and say, you know what, I blow it. I mean, I don't just blow it, like I blew it this week in these areas. I practice sexual morality, and I certainly had evil desires, and, you know, I got angry, and I probably lied to someone, and, 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 and so what do you do? You not only confess your sin to God, but you confess it to one another. And you say, would you, would you help me? Would you pray for me? Would you encourage me? This is part of the beauty of our community groups, why we get together, not just on Sunday morning, but at other times through the week, that we might come together as all fellow sinners, because we're all sinful, all in need of grace, and we say, hey, let's help one another live for Jesus in the ways that he has called us to. And so if you're here today and you have never received the grace of Christ, if you've never come to the realization that God made you not just to live life and enjoy it, but to actually live it for his glory, and that you have blown that, that you have not lived for him, but that Jesus died in your place, as we just talked about. If you are here and you've never embraced that gift, I don't want you to listen to this text and think, man, how could I ever be accepted by God? My sin is so great. How would he ever accept me? Listen, Jesus died for all of the sins of his people. Every single sin he died for and nailed it to the cross, as Colossians 2 tells us. So your sin is not too great, great to keep you from the grace of God. But then there may be others who are here saying, you know what, I could buy that, but my sin, I just enjoy it. 
and the cost of discipleship is too great for you, let me plead with you. I'd love to talk with you more after the service, later uh, this week, this month, is, is, is that Christ is better. He gives lasting pleasure. You were made for him, and you will be unsatisfied until you find life in him. So give up a lesser pleasure for a superior pleasure. And then for those of us who have received the grace of Christ, but we still battle sin day after day after day after day, let me encourage you to see life from a biblical perspective, be filled with God's spirit, use the weapon of the word, and live in community that we might put sin to death and do away with it. Let's pray. God, thank you for uh, your word that is incredibly rich. And Father, this is a heavy text this morning. And uh, Lord, I pray that your spirit would have pierced our hearts with it. For there is none of us here that is exempt from the presence of sin in our life. But God, thank you that there is not one of us who cannot receive from your abundant grace. And so Lord, we pray that, that now you would lead us to turn to you, to respond to you in repentance and faith. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.